$1.5 trillion. That's the total value of the MTA's assets. All the trains, the buses, the yards, the stations, and more. The stuff that moves New Yorkers 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. New York's transit system is a bedrock of the quality of our daily lives and our economy. And if we fail to maintain and replace these assets, it would be devastating for New York. New York sits at an inflection point. Our economy and tourism rebounds, but office occupancy hovers around 55 to 70 percent. Commuting patterns have changed and business district economic activity still hasn't fully recovered. Among New York City's competitive challenges is affordability, with high housing costs being a main factor. Importantly, New York's public transit makes transportation here relatively cheap compared to other places. Transit is key to New York City's affordability, and congestion pricing is key to keeping the MTA's assets in good shape and to reducing emissions and congestion. Hello, I'm Andrew Ryan, President of the Citizens Budget Commission, and thanks for joining us for another episode of What's the Data Point? Today, I talk with MTA Chair and CEO Jano Lieber and President of MTA Construction and Development, Jamie Torres-Springer. We discuss congestion pricing, fare evasion, the need to keep assets in a state of good repair, when we're going to learn how much that actually may cost, and the future of Penn Station, and even more. I hope our conversation helps give you a clear picture of where we're at and what lies ahead for this public service that is essentially the lifeblood of our city. Until next time, when you hear a public official talk about a policy, program, or proposal, always remember to ask, what's the data point? Um, listen, Jamie and I are glad to be here. Jamie's doing an amazing job at construction and development. I'm here to tell you the MTA is actually in a good place at a time when all of the challenges that we face internationally are so daunting. The challenges nationally and in the city are you know, pretty, pretty uh, staggering. Um, the MTA is actually in a good place. I would like to brag a little bit and say I believe that we are good government in action, and I know that that's what folks in this room value. For the last two years, we've had kind of a methodical approach about attacking the key challenges. Marissa started alluding to them coming out of COVID, and we have a lot of progress to show for it. We have five top goals for 2023, recovering ridership, promoting public safety, um, dealing with the operating budget deficit, which is something we work with CBC on a lot, advancing congestion pricing. You know, that's the, you heard, somebody heard, anyone heard about that? Um, yeah, it's, there's a widespread impression that I, I went on a drinking binge and came up with this idea myself, but it's actually the law of the state of New York has been since 2019. So congestion pricing is the fourth priority. And then delivering the capital program, both the 2020 to 2024 program, which is historic in size, but also getting ready for the next program and talking about priorities, another area where we work intensely with CBC. Um, Okay, let's talk about rebuilding ridership and getting New York back to work. Subway, the way we've been doing it is by delivering great performance. Subway on time performance, best in 10 years. Best in 10 years, over 84% goal, we're gonna raise this, the, the goal for next year. And we're attacking a personal uh, passion of mine, which is making the IND, does anyone still speak IND, IRT in this room? Thank you. Um, uh, making the IND, the A, B, C, D, and the F trains a lot, a lot stronger. The IRT, the, the numbered trains, really, really strong performance, frequent performance, a lot of modern signaling. Uh, the IND needs work. But 
85% on-time performance. Long Island Railroad and Metro North, 94% uh, on-time performance, 97% on-time performance. Great, great uh, uh, performance by those teams under Kathy Rinaldi. She just gave up one of those two jobs, but she did amazing work. Um, the result is we're at about 70% of pre-COVID ridership, and actually low 70s. Great weekend and night ridership. That's important because it signals that people will take transit when they have options, when they have options about getting where they are to, uh, to go and whether they're going to go anywhere at all. Um, and uh, um, we're getting it done with increasing service. Thanks to the budget that we got done in 2023, we actually grew service on 12 subway lines. And with the opening of Grand Central Madison, we are providing 40% more Long Island Railroad service in the past. That's not just a boon for Long Islanders who get much more frequency. It also allows us to, to deliver reverse commuting to Long Island. Because if we're going to grow this regional economy, Long Island, which is increasingly part of the knowledge economy, no longer a manufacturing district, has to be able to draw from the full labor pool of the region, and all of a sudden people can jet out to Long Island for jobs that before were unreachable because all of the capacity had to be used on the inbound. Um, the increase in Long Island Railroad service, by the way, is about as many trains, it's three, close to 300 trains a day, about as many trains as New Jersey Transit runs into New York every day. So it's, it's really major. That is a sign of success. Safety, number two priority. Safety, Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams, last year, it's no secret, we were having some pretty daunting upsurge in subway crime. They initiated a program we called Cops, Cameras, and Care. We're now below pre-pandemic crime levels. Overall trend, very positive, notwithstanding the rise in ridership. And that's, that's where we want to be. There's no secret that we still have significant problems in all of our public space with the mental health population, which is impacting disproportionately above and below ground. And we have more work to do, but we have turned back what looked like a surge in crime. Third priority, and the one that we work with you guys on the most, financial stability on the operating budget. Listen, this has gotten not much less attention than it should have because there was such consensus that the MTA needed to be funded, right? I mean, unlike the rest of the country, they're looking at what we call the fiscal cliff, where, you know, because ridership is down, revenues are down, lo and behold, um, they're starting to cut service, raise fares, do layoffs. Here in New York, we didn't even think about that. The governor stepped up and led the way to a ba five-year balanced budget for MTA. And part of the reason it wasn't controversial was that the business community, the New York City business community, who is bearing the burden of a little extra payroll mobility tax to fund that, said, you know what, you're right. We are letting people come to work one to three days a week, but we want great service five days a week. We are willing to pay more. That was a man bites dog moment, an act of civic leadership. And I want to credit the business community of New York City. It's the, it's the large businesses who are paying this. But most of all, Governor Hochul for showing us the way. And finally, a tip of the hat to Dick Ravage. Because when we were trying to raise, thank you. When we were trying to raise consciousness on this issue, Dick was an advisor to me every step of the way. He wrote a couple of major op-eds about it, and it created this consensus again, which is, was great, 
But in some ways, because there's a lack of controversy, this achievement of Governor Hochul's didn't get enough attention. I also need to emphasize, because otherwise Andrew will be in my face, um, that a lot of the, the, the heavy lifting of balance and budget was done by the MTA. We set ourselves a goal of knocking out $400 million of cost through operating efficiencies, no reduction in service, no, no layoffs, um, and just squeezing down our own operations. We achieved it for 2023. We are on track to achieve it for 2024, and we're raising the goal from 400 to 500 million a year for 2025. So we're doing, the MTA is doing its part to keep that five zeros in place. The real kicker about this budget stuff is that despite the major service increases that we've done, which are really three to $500 million in cost, in real inflation-adjusted dollars, the MTA budget is actually down by $500 million in the last, in, in, over the past five years. 3% real uh, inflation-adjusted reduction in the MTA budget. Where else is that happening in major governmental institutions? It's worth noting, however, that one major risk remains that could upend our progress, and that is fare evasion. While overall fare revenues are tracking our projections, the number of actual paying riders is dropping below expectations, especially on buses. Now, I did a, a impaneled a, a, a group we called the Blue Ribbon Commission on Fare Evasion about a year and a half ago. Everybody rolled their eyes at me. But this problem is surging, and we need, as a, as a society, to deal with it. We don't want to criminalize poverty. We don't want to have a, a pure, old-fashioned crackdown approach, but we need to kind of reestablish in people's minds, especially on buses, that this is essential for our city to work. We cannot have uh, a situation where, where the MTA budget goes back in the tank because folks are treating fair paying as optional. But can answer questions on that. Uh, moving on, the, fifth, the fourth priority we had, obviously, was congestion pricing, um, getting it to the finish line so that we can finally do something about the insane traffic that is choking our city. New York is number one in congestion. We're proud of always our leadership in many categories, not so much this one, um, nationally. Whatever your potential, your political outlook, can we just agree that when the, uh, the, the fire trucks can't get to fires and the ambulances can't get to hospitals, that we got to do something? And it is also incredibly costly to have trucks and, and uh, utility vehicles sitting in traffic, not to mention the value of people's time who have to drive. So we've got to do something. And by the way, we need the money. The capital program is 30% funded by congestion pricing. That's the $15 billion we're waiting. So no, we, we're now approaching the end of the adventure and bureaucratic process that we have gone through to try to make congestion pricing laws. Anyone notice how hard it is to do anything substantial in our system? This is the model of it. It's a four-year process, but we're getting there. And I expect after the vote that the MTA board uh, took last week to start the final state-required SAPA process that we're going to be able to vote on it finally uh, in probably in, in a couple months. The only issue is that our friends in New Jersey have decided that they're, they're going to litigate this against us. Um, I would just say, rather than arguing with New Jersey, I'm still waiting for that call about the Garden State Parkway and the turnpike tolls when they ask my opinion about that. But that's another matter. Um, 
but the but rem, bear in mind the business community has always supported congestion pricing. There's a reason that Rebney, the real estate board, the New York City Partnership were early supporters. Kathy Wild was incredibly articulate on this at our board meeting. It is it is a business friendly initiative, and we got to get it. Um, and the money from congestion pricing, as I said, is going to go to the capital program. We need to implement this historic. Uh, 2020 to 2024 capital program was delayed by about 18 months because we had to hang on to the money. We didn't know if we were going to have enough money to keep the lights on and, and whether we would have to cannibalize operating for capital. We got past that and now we have been knocking out work at an unprecedented pace and Marissa said it right, faster, better and cheaper than before. Jamie's going to talk about this, but we have changed the way that we do capital projects at the MTA. So I'm not going to talk about this. It'll get, we'll get into it in the dialogue. But everybody always comes back to two projects that began under the Pataki administration, Eastside Access, Second Avenue Subway, Phase 1, as if they are emblematic of today's MTA. They're not. Just, you know, if you want to talk about what the MTA is doing on major capital projects, let's talk about Third Track, a $2.5 billion project down the center of Long Island. 10, mile, uh, 10 miles long, on time, under budget. The L train project, we didn't shut down the tunnel, we didn't shut down L train service, we got it done six months early and $100 million under budget. Um, those are projects that represent today's MTA and we're gonna keep pushing in that direction. And finally, because we're doing such, uh, what I think is such a good job at CND, we have laid out I think a better, uh, put ourselves in a great position to address the needs of the, of the system through the, in the next capital program, the 2025 to 29 capital program, which is detailed in that 20-year needs assessment, a statutorily required report that we put out a couple of weeks ago. It is the first time you have an actual compendium of the condition and the criticality of the system at a, at a real level of detail. There were six million assets and components that were evaluated and looked at to determine which ones are most vulnerable, which need investment. It's not, it used, the old MTA just said, well, we're going to invest based on age. It's not only age that should determine where you invest. It's the condition. If you go down, uh, go down uh, and walk up the tracks at Grand Central, you'll get into the Grand Central train shed. Basically, Park Avenue is a bridge. All that great real estate is supported on a bridge that is slowly collapsing. All that concrete and rebar is coming apart. It's over 100 years old, a lot of it. It's been subjected to um, salt and chemicals, and all our friends in the utilities poke holes in the ground, and all that water comes down. We have to invest in basic stuff. We'll talk about it. Um, but amazing piece of work, nothing like it has ever been done before. Basic business principles say, that you gotta invest, if you have a one and a half trillion dollar asset, and as that is the most current valuation of the value of our, our mass transit system as, a, as an aging industrial property, if you have a one and a half trillion dollar asset, you have to be investing many billions more than we are right now in order to maintain it, and let alone to improve it for the future. So this 20 year needs assessment document lays out what we gotta do, we're gonna continue, we're gonna, we're starting the process of putting numbers at what, and that's something that we've talked to Andrew and your team about, um, how do you value and, uh, particular projects and particular initiatives. We've got to get that going, and we start, have to start building consensus for that level of investment. 
the capital program has to be in place by the end of 2024. So we're not asking the legislature for money this year. They don't, they don't want to see me again. Um, but uh, next year, we will have to be in the mode of funding the capital program. So with that, let me turn it back to Andrew and to Jamie, and we're going to have some kind of conversation. Thank you. Um, thank, thanks, thanks so much. I mean, I'm looking at my questions here, and, and, and you answered a lot of them here, so that, that, that speeds us up a little, so I, I appreciate it. Um, but I do want to, first of all, thank you for the dialogue. I mean, as Marissa said, and as, as you said, we talk all the time. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes there are challenging conversations back and forth, but it's always productive, and it's always for the future of New York and the criticality of transit to our future. Never a question. Never a question. Um, and that's the beauty of, frankly, the CBC model for you know, 92 years. Um, you talked about your budget being balanced over five years. A wonderful achievement. You talk, I mean, in November, before the state rescue plan came out, you had the 400 million up to 500. Can you just, because we've talked about productivity a lot, give us um, a, a, a little, um, flesh that out a little, give some examples of what you're doing and, and, and the productivity that you have been able to achieve and what your plan is to um, get more. Well, I, I think that you, you know that the, the, the public labor relations model constrains us a little bit. So that what we live in the world of pattern bargaining. So when there's a deal done by DC, the city with DC 37, there's an economic package that then is translated through the other, uh, the other parts of public sector. And so that what we do is we, we say, okay, we're, we're ready to, 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 to ante up for that amount of money, but we want to bargain about, about productivity. And we put a lot of stuff on the table. But there are challenges in this, in this model, which is that the unions have the resort to arbitration where they can pretty easily get uh, just the dollars and not really bargain on work rules. Our, our emphasis this year was on increasing availability the, in the last TWU round, and we made some progress. One is, uh, what key fact is that before, back about seven, eight years ago, we had 206, people were working 216 days a year. After COVID, they were working like 194 days a year. And the combination of a lot more workers' comp, a lot more sick time, and some other variables meant that you were having to hire a lot more people and work a lot more <laughs> overtime to get the same output. So we put together, without dragging us down into details, we put together a package that the union agreed to to increase availability. We've already gotten back about four or five days. And we're working on getting, getting to a much higher level. And we've actually created a, 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 joint, a model of shared benefits. If we get above a certain level, the union and the, and the workforce will start to participate. So, you know, we're, we're outsourcing workers' comp, which is a source of all kinds of inefficiency. And I won't say fraud, but it is a little shady uh, in many cases. Um, and, and we're trying to get the tort system that the MTA gets hit with under control. Those are two areas that have huge impact to our budget. But availability of the workforce is, uh, is a major priority. Rich Davy at New York City Transit has instituted what he calls an aware and care program where someone gets hurt, they're reached out to, and you look after them, you interact with them much more. Hopefully they're getting better health care, and hopefully they're being brought back to work much more quickly. Also need to make sure that if they have family issues, 
you know, frankly, people are out because their kids are having problems or whatever. If they have family issues, they know what the MTA can provide to support them. So all of these things working together, the big goal is productivity is to get those days of availability back. And I think we're making some progress. No, I appreciate that both in the contract and, and it's both in, in the contract, as you said, the gain sharing, if that's the right word for this kind of um, um, split after five days or in the um, efficiency plan that you had. Is there any hope that in the next round of bargaining, because the reality is um, your budget is, the outlook is positive as we both use the same, you know, words on, on that, but of course, you know, if we are paying more than we need to, or if we can save some money, we can provide better service, be more reliable, all those things. Is there any hope that in the next round, and with the legislature maybe as encouragement to um, get more productivity cooperating with labor? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we, we put a ton of issues on the table. We, um, some of it is honestly, Andrew, is that we have to do a better job of making sure that our managers and supervisors use the tools that they have to insist on the rules that exist. Some of that is, um, you know, I'm always shocked to find out, well, we bargained for something and then, you know, we didn't implement it in effect because of the way labor relations work. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, you can lose the right to, to something that you bargained for if you haven't moved to implement it timely. I mean, it's interesting because that's one of the things Dale Hammerdinger, you mentioned Dick, we've lost Dale in the last yes. year. And the architect of our position on, on congestion pricing, you know, on the specifics, um, was Steve Poland probably more than anybody else. What, what, what a, a set of losses for CPC yeah, in the transit year. community. Tough year. I mean, those are all, those are all good friends. I, you know, I work with Steve and negotiated with Steve, which is, uh, which is a, a, a challenge. Um, <laughs> God bless his soul. Um, I, I lost on stuff, too. Yeah. And I, you know, he, but uh, Dale, Steve, Rich, Dick Ravitch, you're talking about you know, civic luminaries, people who, who are passionate about it. But listen, we are going to keep pushing for more productivity, but the, the dollars are in things that we are attacking, Andrew, which is availability and health care and workers, the workers' comp system. Those are the three big uh, items where I think there's a ton of cost that spills out of the system that we have to attack. We have we don't have as much leverage as I would like on some other issues, but we're going to keep attacking those three big so ones. So back to fair evasion for a second, which we don't have to belabor. You already yeah. made, made the point. I just want people to understand. I think it was 2022. You had 690 million that you lost in fair yeah. evasion. Is that the right year and right number? Um, I, I think um, you put in 100 million for contingency for next year. Good budgeting. Um, in case fair evasion is higher than you expect. Um, are there enforcement efforts that you are stymied on doing that we should be supporting? Because this is obviously, I mean, that amount of fair evasion, it's two rounds of, of increases. So you're, you're really getting killed by this. What's baked into your budget, and what can we do to reduce that? Um, interesting question. I think that we're, you know, on the, frankly, on the, on the subways, I think that what we're seeing is an, is an epidemic of opportunistic fair evasion. And that is largely because, to, in my view, because the, the slam gate, you know, these are, this is a group of New Yorkers, you know what I'm talking about, the exiting gate, the people pop open just because it sometimes is the most convenient way to walk out of the system. Once it's opened, people walk in. And there's also a lot of people who go and open the slam gate, hold it open, break the machine, and run scams where they take money from people to let them in. If we could have, you know, if we can eliminate that opening in the system, 
Uh, there are always going to be people who are going to climb over the turnstile or under or backcock and so on. I think if we could eliminate the opportunistic fair vision where people see the gate open and they have a Metro card in their hand and they veer away, that would do a ton. So we are actually, Jamie's leading this, we are appealing to the code authorities of the state of New York who regulate fire safety to let us change the gate, to put a delay on it, to, it, to have different mechanisms to assure fire safety and exiting in the event of a fire. We're also implementing uh, new, fair, uh, new turnstiles, um, which are wider because we all know people with luggage and strollers and, and the whole shebang are having trouble getting through the regular turnstile, and they end up needing the gate. So we're doing these wider turnstiles um, for accessibility reasons as well at a couple places and trying those out, and we might be able to move those more quickly. I am somewhat optimistic, guardedly optimistic about fare evasion in the subways. I'm really worried about the buses. We have no, the buses effectively have always been a, a you know, voluntary compliance system. When I was a kid, sometimes the bus driver would call you back and say, hey kid, you owe me a nickel, you know. That happened on the 79th Street Crosstown, right Janice? Um, <laughs> but that doesn't happen anymore. Too many bus drivers got beat up. So we have a system which has reached a tipping point in some parts of the city where people, like half the people are getting on and they just walk by. So we have started to, to put unarmed but uniformed revenue enforcement agents on buses, some plainclothes folks. The quicker we can get the Omni system in place, I believe that we're gonna have more ability to do European style checking where you could have somebody get on a bus and check everybody for proof of payment. Um, but we, the buses is where we have to focus. And Andrew, honestly, it's premature for me to tell you I have a clear strategy. It's going to start with enforcement, but the quicker we can get to Omni and have a targeted, fair confirmation type system, that's the, the best way to go. And hey, you could do it on commuter rail too, but we, we can talk about that in the future. Yeah. But the, this changing social norm, I mean, people say this to you much more than they say it to me, but I've heard this, and maybe this isn't polite, but people say it to me, am I the schmuck who's paying? Absolutely. I it's, mean, it's, it's totally like demoralized, right? The whole sense of community. I mean, New York, we function you know, at the density we have because, uh, and it's one of the things that we're all proud of, we really share the city because of parks and libraries and most of all transit. And if this becomes a place where people feel like not everybody is, is playing by the same rules and there's no sense of community, we're going to lose something. So, Jamie. Yes. We'll get to the 20-year needs assessment, too, which is a beautiful thing. I, I, I didn't print out the 267 pages, including appendices, because um, I'm trying to be environmentally correct. But uh, I hope just, you read it. Um, I've read a lot of it. And again, <laughs> last night I was, I was up, up late. But before we get to this, um, better, faster, cheaper. What's our throughput um, going to be this year of capital plans, and why are we more expensive than any place else, which has been the common parlance. This is not CBC research, but people always say, ah, it's too much money. You build these big stations. It's more per mile. What the heck are we doing about that? Good question. And, and you're right. We would never see CBC research that is so uh, based in, in so little fact. Um, but, uh, you know, I, but there's some truth to it. And um, you know, I, I think we, we are, as Jano said earlier, making this uh, into an agency that is able to deliver uh, as good stewards of public dollars. One of the challenges that Jano gave me early on in this job was going back, getting to the real facts, benchmarking, identifying best practices based on what is happening in other jurisdictions. Um, and you know, there's no question, we are more expensive than comparable systems. 
Uh, and there's a couple different perspectives on that. One is, you know, it costs about 35, 40% more to build a commercial office building in New York City than any comparable market. Well, guess what? When we went and benchmarked the vast majority of our capital plan, because, you know, again, Jano said it, as we, you know, we all focus on Second Avenue Subway, Eastside Access, those are important projects. That represents 17% of our current five-year capital program. 83% of this program is what we call core infrastructure. It's state of good repair, normal replacement, system improvements. So when we went and benchmarked that portion, 83% of our program, we are about 30, 35% higher than comparable systems. So, you know, that really tells you that uh, it's a function of things like our density, our higher wages, our 24-7 system, our ridership, but it doesn't mean that we're just resting on our laurels and walking away. There's a lot that we're doing to try to address these issues of cost containment, and we're seeing some success. Last year, we identified that we saved a billion dollars. We saved $400 million on the placement of our insurance program, which was a recognition that we are running the capital program in a more effective way. We saved $250 million uh, in awards for contracts against our engineers' estimates. It's not, we acknowledge, it's not the perfect metric, um, but for what we thought it was going to cost, we saved $250 million. And we saved $200 million last year for more efficient use of force account which is such a driver of how our system works. So, and that's a function of uh, uh, sharing risk in a different way through a whole bunch of different measures that we've taken, better, more aggressive project management, and then being clearer up front about what it is we're building when we scope, which is a sort of classic problem in public agency delivery. It's one that I experienced at the city, even to a much greater extent, um, but we've, wholly revamp the system. Uh, part of it is what the Jano created, C&D, and it means we have the grasp of the whole capital program from start to finish. We plan it, we do the budgeting, we develop projects, we bundle them and we package them, we get very clear about scope, and we know we're gonna deliver it on behalf of the operating agencies and hand it over. So with that full control, we're able to be much clearer about scope. And something that we're going to do going forward is spending a lot more time on modernizing our systems, using technology, digitizing the way that we manage. All this stuff is underway, and it's showing real results. And um, lightning round question, if I can, before we get to this. Yeah. How much are you saving on design build and progressive design build? Do you have a rule of thumb? We don't have a rule of thumb. Last year, we saved uh, on, on our design build awards about 8 9% versus our estimates, which is pretty good, um, and it's what drove a lot of the savings. Um, you know, design build, in some ways, you're not going to see the dollars up front. You're going to see them on avoided costs. You know, it's, everybody knows the sort of classic design, bid, build, you know, government delivery model where you get contractors who, uh, you know, either they're just trying to do a good job or they're opportunistic. They're the low bid. Um, they know that the drawings, we, you know, we've done the best we can at getting to 100% drawings, but uh, they know that there's holes in the drawings, so they're going to find things when they get into the street or into the system uh, and then start uh, sending change orders our way. You can't do that in design build. Uh, it's all of the risk, uh, you know, substantial majority of the risk is transferred to the contractor. And as a result of that, we're seeing savings. We are also awarding our first progressive design build. You know, we're not wholly on board with progressive design build because it's transferring all the design risk, uh, retaining all the design risk at our agency. Uh, in some cases, we probably have to do it. 
um, because, you know, there's a little less certainty. But again, the results are clear, and Jano mentioned the big projects, the $100 million we were able to save on Third Track, which was the agency's first design, big major design build, uh, you know, savings uh, in each case, and also bringing things in on schedule. And, you know, this is the big difference for me in you know, working in an agency like this is that the currency of our system is outages and force account support. When we're taking track out and taking down service, either for a weekend or for a night, or in some cases we have to do it longer term, the most important thing is that we bring it back on time. And design build is allowing us to bring projects in on schedule or ahead of schedule. We've got a record of results on that. I, I, I'll just say, you know, uh, we have an independent engineering consultant that, uh, you know, Second guesses, though. Second guesses. Yeah. But, you know, historically. But now, you know, now we have a very good, uh, very good collaborative relationship. <laughs> Last month, you know, they, they do, there's this thing in the back of the board book that nobody looks at, but should, because it's called a traffic light report. Last month, uh, they looked at our railroads business units, so the work for Long Island Railroad and Metro North. We had 82 active projects, and of those 82 projects, they identified four of them less than 5%, maybe that's a little more than 5%, that had uh, minor schedule slips, not, you know, years of delay, minor schedule slips. And it's the same across that traffic light report for our whole portfolio. So we're seeing really amazing results in terms so of schedule. So I'll skip my question asking about you, comparing your throughput versus when Jana was in charge of it, you know, knowing that the data it's, on COVID. Are no, uh, I'm just joking. It's, um, it's, but, all, one, it's all one MTA. No, 20 year needs assessment, um, more comprehensive than ever before assessment of the assets, um, more standardized um, assessment of expansion projects. What'd you find, what scared you the most? How do you describe the state of the system? Well, um, you know, we start with saying, you know, we, as, as, as you said, Jano, the, you know, we're in the midst of the largest capital program in the MTA's history, $55 billion, 70% bigger than before. You know, Andrew, you're on us a lot, and we appreciate it on can we actually deliver at that scale, and we have been. We awarded $11.4 billion worth of work last year. We unfortunately are not going to hit uh, $10 billion that we, were, that we need to hit because of the New Jersey-induced delays to congestion pricing. Uh, but we're going to have a pretty good year anyway. So we're moving and we're investing in the state of good repair of the system. But what the 20-year needs assessment shows us is that we have a lot more work to do. State of good repair, improvement and modernization, and also expansion if we're able to uh, get to expansion. So the system is aging. Um, you know, we looked at those 6 million assets. They are getting older by the day. Uh, and there's a lot of wear and tear that we put them through by operating the system 24-7. So we're seeing poor and marginal condition assets. You know, 35% of our substations for New York City Transit are in poor and marginal condition. Over 50% of our Long Island Railroad substations, poor and marginal condition. Uh, we're seeing real deterioration across the whole system, you know, and it, it, as we build the system, you know, we continue to see it. So we have 231 escalators in the system. An escalator has a useful life of 17 to 22 years in our system. So within, guess what, within the 20-year needs assessment, we need to replace 231 escalators. Same thing with all these elevators that we've installed. We now have 147, hopefully by the end of the year, 148 stations that are ADA accessible. 
those elevators all have a useful life of around 20 years, so we're going to need to replace those two. There's a, and Jano mentioned, you know, the Grand Central Artery. When you look at the terminal, the train shed that's deteriorating, the tunnel uh, uptown, which, you know, also is in a state of disrepair, and then the viaduct, which we're, have a good contractor. We are in the midst of phase one, a replacement, but it continues to deteriorate, and so there's a big investment. I, I just want to say that this is probably the most important way we can honor Dick Ravitch's legacy. I mean, Dick talked about, I mean, he convinced Governor Kerry in the late 70s and, 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 and early 80s that we couldn't let the system fall apart, and the term state of good repair was introduced into public discussion by Dick. We now, if you, you will come with us, Andrew, and the staff at CVC and see the condition of the power stations. Nobody wants to invest in these things. It ain't sexy. Al D'Amato and, and George Pataki wanted to do east side access. It will be a great boon for the city in the long run. But in the meantime, no one's interested in the, in the power substations, which are like the land that time forgot. You go down there, and it is literally 1968 equipment that hasn't been touched. And some of it is blowing out. And I, I went to one substation, I asked the, the folks who were running it, who were doing amazing work, what's the backup? They said, well, we got another one at, at was it 139th Street? Yeah. Yeah, it's even older. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. so we have to convince all of us, we have to convince the powers that be to come together, whatever the financing plan, whatever, to, to attack this problem. Because the things that were old when Dick was talking to Governor Kerry are now decrepit. And I want to I point out the last remaining state of good repair hat that I will ask you guys before you leave to sign and we'll start a tradition because this is, I think, Carol, you can tell us all at some point about the genesis of this. Um, but this is the last remaining one, although I did try to give it to Andy Byford and then six months later it came back from the legal department that he was not allowed to accept it. And I felt very bad that someone spent time writing me that yeah. letter. But um, if you could just, sign he, he it. Thought, he thought it was a gift from Governor Cuomo, yeah. that's it. The, 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 um, but no, no, I, I, think, I think that's very important. Yeah. And when you release the needs assessment, you talked about state of good repair. Yeah. One of our critiques, as good as this 20-year um, needs assessment is, and it's really important that everyone look at, at the detail there, one of our critiques, of course, was that um, we have advocated for a comprehensive project list over five and 20 years, the time frames and the cost. Because without that, it's hard from the outside to say, what does it take? As you've said, you're not going to go to Albany this year for the money, but what might it take to bring that system to a state of good repair? To, get, to give us that sense, a com combined plan and dollar amount would allow us to start to have that discussion more robustly. I mean, I, I listen, we're, 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 this is a you're, you're, you're now seeing a debate that happens on an ongoing basis between our two organizations. We will get there, Andrew. We will come up with a plan that is, that is uh, cost specific. But the truth is that if you put a number out on the, this is what they did before. The governor's office said, here's the envelope. The MTA came up with a needs assessment that was constrained by that envelope. There was no, there wasn't appropriate discussion of what is the condition of the system. So we needed to start, and I think we're, I'm glad we did it this way, to really get people to focus on the condition of the system, the criticality of different assets uh, to, to the ability to deliver service. And, and Andrew, we will, we will provide detailed cost assumptions 
That discussion is going to unfold, but if we jump there right away, we would never have the discussion about the power, the condition of the power system. We would have been talking about money immediately. And, and, and to be clear, when we've said that, we want the unconstrained version first because we agree 100%. Yes. If, if you were to say, and I'm making up a number, if you were to say that 1% is one of your board members talked about reinvesting in the, in the system, 1% of your 1.5 trillion assets, that we need $15 billion you know, a year, five years, that's $75 billion for, to bring it to a state of good repair. It, and you don't have that. The least we could say is uh, that's why we think it should be unconstrained because if it's 75 and we only have 50, we have to make those hard choices. You have to make those hard choices. That's the discussion that we all want to want to be we having. Will. We will. It's, we will. It's a question of timing. Uh, you know, the other, uh, apart from the idea that it just creates this perverse, you know, sort of incentive to fit it into what the what the number is. You know, it's also you want to be unconstrained in the way you assess the system, but. It's also unrealistic to try to build up a number about what we need to do without constraining it by, you know, how would we bundle things? How would we package things? Do we have enough? And, we, you know, you don't necessarily need to constrain by dollars. Do we have enough support within the system? Can we manage the outages to actually yeah. put these projects together? And that's the work that we're doing right now. We're taking this needs assessment and we're converting it into a specific plan that will be costed and you'll be able to take it and say, okay, they said that the, you know, the 36% of substations are in a state of disrepair. What are they doing? How many substations are they doing in this capital program? Uh, what's the proposal for that? And that will give you the information that you need to know. You're watching a family argument, everybody. This is, this is goes on every but this day. But this is, I and mean, I think we'd all agree, this is the discussion that has to be had about those yeah. trade-offs because it is a challenge and the needs are great. And if we let the system deteriorate, our economy, our quality of life goes down. There, there's there's, there's yeah. no disagreement on yeah. that. Well, then can the, I make one other point about please. the needs assessment? So state of good repair is really critical, but we also are eyeing system improvement and modernization in an important way. And expansion is another topic that we're talking about this existing system that we have. We have a commitment to ADA accessibility, 95% of stations by 2055. We're doing five times the rate now. We gotta keep up that rate in the next program. But we also are looking at, uh, and we're looking at resignaling. We got five, five lines on the, on, in the works right now for resignaling uh, and need to keep that up over the next 20 year period so that we achieve the, not necessarily other capacity needs, but the reliability that we get on the, I call it the B division, uh, the, uh, the I mean, maybe a little post IND IRT here, um, but, um, but on, those, on those lettered lines, that's the priority um, in addition to the IRT, of course. And then um, the two things that I'm really focused on uh, are the resiliency of the system. So we've had the great uh, fortune of in being able to invest $7 billion of federal Sandy money in coastal protection of our system, which is important because we've got lots of low-lying assets. Now we're doing a multi-hazard vulnerability assessment and identifying opportunities to address heavy rainfall. And just, you know, again, we're doing this in a comprehensive way. I know we all focus on the YouTube video that shows, you know, rain coming in, you know, coming down the stairs of a station. So fine, we gotta deal with that, especially if that water is gonna get above the third rail. If we can't pump it out quickly enough and we wanna stop it, we wanna, we wanna wet proof, we wanna dry proof. But there are a lot of other locations in our system, not stations, that are causing service disruption. It's low-lying yards. It's tunnel portals. 
Um, those are the areas that we're focused on addressing in addition to, you know, on the railroads, the resiliency of the Hudson Line, Mont Haven Yard, lots of assets that need resiliency investment. And then last thing is technology. And I, I, Andrew, I'll stop after this. Tech, you know, we, we are, you know, there's an expectation uh, by riders that we are much more technically wired and we're going to be. We have a deal to pull fiber across all 300 tunnels within the subway system. Uh, and we're introducing customer-facing technology, but also, again, it's like the power substations, things that are a little, you know, boring to people, is how we actually manage and operate this system depends on an incredible array of technologies that we really need to modernize, and this is another thing that we're, we've identified and are working on. And I just want to echo, there's a lot of not public-facing infrastructure that doesn't get the support, and when we go through it, and staff, health and safety, Issues. There's real. There's real yes. stuff, and know, know that you have our Absolutely. support in that. Before opening up for questions, yeah. on the expansion projects, what's the number one priority? You analyzed 25 of them, I believe, if our count is right. What's the number one priority, and what happens if we don't actually have the money to get there? Can we? Can we actually have the political will to hold it off while we fix the system? Okay, you, you, you should answer. Yeah, but, should answer it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but the, but just. I didn't clear, realize this we, was a we evaluated. We evaluated yeah. projects using. These are proposed expansion projects, and we took was it 2025, yeah. and uh, and evaluated them using a range of criteria. We did not say this one's number one, this one's number two, and so on, because there are a lot of different factors that that will go into that process and evaluation. But I'll, I'll throw it to Jamie. I just want to be clear: we have not said this is number one. Uh, yeah. and it's going to get funded. No, that's right. I mean, what we wanted to do again, it's you know step by step is is look at everything on a level playing field. So we did that. All projects we looked at, $20-27. We did the same analysis of what ridership would be, what the time savings would be, uh, created a, a, a sort of understanding of what the equity areas are in the city that need better transportation access. So everything's on a level playing field, and everybody can look at it. You know, I tend to think as sort of, you know, former, former consultant that, you know, the cost-benefit metric that we put out there, which is really cost, you know, all the you know, 30-year life cycle cost versus, you know, not just new riders or existing riders, travel time saved is probably the best, you know, ratio to look at. And when you start to look at projects like that, some of the things that have been in the dialogue um, are, you know, sort of creep up to the top. Again, you know, people need to make their own judgments, but certainly, you know, the governor uh, was right in, uh, in pushing us to prioritize the Interborough Express because that did very well. Um, which sort of an interesting surprise as we did the analysis, the product of good analysis was uh, that, um, that extending 2nd Avenue subway once we're done uh, and have it at Park Avenue and 125th Street further west to Broadway actually scores very well, both because of the crosstown capacity uptown and because of the relief it would provide for the west side subway lines that come in from the Bronx. We have some BRT uh, and, uh, you know, rapid busway projects that scored very well on the north shore of Staten Island, a busway on Myrtle Avenue out, out uh, in, in, uh, in Queens. So there's a few um, projects that look particularly appealing, and it requires some discuss, you know, dialogue with the city about what their priorities are, um, you know, thinking about the comprehensively about the system, which is what we're doing now. We started a little late, but I want to have a, a couple of questions, if people can be quick in a a asking them, if we can turn. Um, I'll look some of Margo, please. Um, thanks. First, I just want to say that I'm also part of the Steve Pullen Appreciation Society, Amen. and I 
miss him every day, but I was very fortunate he was on my side the last few years, so I got to have a taste of the success that comes with that. Um, my question is about congestion pricing. Um, I lived in London during the years where it was first rolled out from 2004 to 2007, and there was, of course, a noticeable uptick in ridership in both the tube trains and the buses, and London, of course, planned for that by expanding service um, in both ways and on other modalities as well. Um, I ride the subway in New York every day to work. It is very busy already during rush hours, so I'm curious about what the planned improvements are to make sure that the transfer of ridership or the increase in ridership is, is planned for and that congestion on the subways is also alleviated as well. So some of this is math. I mean, the, the, the projections of the... We, we tend to lose track of the numbers, right? There are only 135,000 people who drive to the central business district. It's, a, it's 10% basically of our commuter population. The projections from congestion pricing based on London and other places is maybe 10 to 20% of those people will choose to switch to transit. So we're talking about a, a relatively manageable, the, at most 100,000 more people will be going to transit. We have room for those people in our transit system. At 70, 75% of our existing system, without going back to the crush loading on the, on the four or five that we all used to experience at, at 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning, we can't accommodate those people. But we are adding service, as I said, dramatically expanding Long Island Railroad, adding subway service, and we can continue to add subway service as we bring more signaling on um, but I do think that, that we have, you know, a fair amount of room on the system, and we want to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that people are accommodated um, and comfortably, and we can do it. Um, other questions? Other questions? I had, why don't I turn to Ed Walls for a second? Um, and I want to look, we'll take one more from the back before, so I want to see some hands raised so I can be ahead of, ahead of my just quickly, um, I've heard you say that your mission is transit and not housing or building, but you yeah. own a ton of air rights around the city. You're in the real estate business like almost every other New York entity. Um, have you put a value to that, and is there a policy as to how you monetize that for the benefit of transit? Well, I mean, the thing that you, you should take to this, but the thing that we're, you know, transit-oriented development, everywhere we do uh, grow service or expand service or bring new service, we look for opportunities to do housing uh, that is convenient because it, if nothing else, it allows people to uh, to commute without you know owning a, a, a car or an extra car. So all through Long Island and Westchester, we're looking at parking lots where we own them uh, and seeing if you could build structured parking so you wouldn't lose parking spaces and and then develop uh, real estate from multifamily housing. So we've done that in Harrison, New York. We're doing it in Westbury. We're looking at more and more of those opportunities everywhere. Um, the, the whole, the, Ed, you know this better than anyone else, the, the disconnect between the city's land use authority and the MTA's state identity sometimes creates complexity. Um, but we're always open to anything that delivers housing and more, you know, naturally more customers for the MTA and a more, uh, a more environmentally friendly pattern of commuting or incentives for commuting. We're going to look at that. And we're looking at all of our, all the opportunities. I mean, people say, well, why can't you do another Hudson Yards? It's usually because the cost of building a deck over an MTA facility is greater than the value of the land at that moment. But at some point, 
land values in the region are going to grow in outer boroughs and the suburbs enough so that we would consider put decking over our major facilities and doing uh, that. But that requires, again, the market to evolve. Jamie? Well, just that, uh, just that it's something of a misconception that we're sort of drowning in, in excess air rights in uh, in, in good market, uh, you know, positive sort of, you know, feasible market opportunities. Um, you know, what we have, we are deploying. I mean, it, it is a, there's not a square foot that our TOD group does not, is not actively thinking about how to mobilize. But as Jano says, a lot of it tends to be, you know, at the ends of lines uh, in complex infrastructure environments where you have an operating yard and you know, it only makes sense if you get the real estate economics to actually make it feasible to work. But, you know, as conditions change, you know, one example is, uh, you know, as everybody here knows, we have a much better flex industrial market in the city uh, as a result of recent changes uh, than we did 10 years ago. So we just awarded uh, a, a site uh, up at Gun Hill Road for a flex industrial project that will, uh, it's adjacent to our Gun Hill uh, Road bus depot, it will also deliver us 200 uh, electrified bus charging uh, spaces as well. So, you know, we're, we've got our eye on sort of the change in market opportunities and, and, you know, again to the point, the governor's issued this executive order 30 uh, or 20, which requires us as an entity to go through and systematically identify opportunities to create housing, and we're doing that, we're doing that in the suburbs, we're looking, you know, the other category is sites we've acquired in the course of building very large-scale projects, so now that Eastside Access is complete, we do have sites in Queens, we even have, uh, you know, a couple of sites in Manhattan that are poised for redevelopment, and we've uh, acquired a number of sites for Second Avenue Subway, of course, we have to go and build our infrastructure, our ancillary buildings before we're in a position to... Uh, engage in joint development, but we're 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 working on all. But of it. that's a good point. We got when the sec when Second Avenue was up zone, East Harlem was up zone. Yeah. We 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 made a special point of getting a specific uh, provision that would allow us to do uh, some development above the ancillary facilities, these ventilation facilities that you have to build, and some other things that will allow us to do some of that joint development. And well, I picked the last one. I would be remiss because we've hit a lot of important topics. The future of Penn Station, what's the next steps? Is there an RFP? Can everyone bid on it? What's, what, what is this? Because we haven't heard, with other things going on, we haven't heard much about Penn Station lately, and we know time is of the essence. Yeah, we're, we're in a preliminary engineering stage of that. We awarded a, a competitive uh, design contract to um, uh, an engineering and design team, and they're um, you know, taking us up to 30% design. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. We've said it many times. Our focus and our job is to ensure that we're creating transportation benefits for the 600,000 600, daily users of Penn Station, of which, you know, we're not shy about saying this, 70% of which come from the 7th Avenue side of the station, which is why the sort of central feature of our project, you know, we're improving we have, uh, improvements in this master plan all across the entire superblock. But the central feature for us is this mid-block train hall. Um, that's not only an opportunity to create a better Penn Station and passenger comfort, but you know, again, for what drives and motivates us is safety. I mean, you just need enough uh, higher ceilings, uh, higher headroom for uh, to maintain tenable environments in a smoke condition, which you know we have. Had the experience of opening Grand Central Madison, I got to just come in at the end and uh, and work on that. But that was the you know the the few weeks of additional delay that we had was all about 
achieving sufficient airflow and ventilation that we could maintain tenability in a smoke condition. It's required by international transportation uh, regulations, NFPA 130, and that's what we have to do at Penn Station. And, and so I understand, so there'll be, after that design, there'll be an open RFP, and anybody can bid on that even with different designs, or how open is yeah, that? Because there's been a lot you know, of discussions. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you know, there is thinking that we're doing about how exactly to structure the project. We want to, you know, again, we've had a lot of success with design build. Um, the three railroads are thinking through the implementation of it together, and we'll, uh, you know, have a competitive uh, procurement for delivery of the project at the end of design. But one of the complexities that we face is there are a lot of different cooks in the kitchen. And, yeah. you know, sometimes, it, you know, the, the state of New York has been, I think, very, uh, has stepped up to support the Gateway Project, which is an important regional project to make sure that there's tunnel capacity across the river. But, um, you know, I, I as a, an MTA uh, leader, I'm concerned that the reconstruction of Penn's, existing Penn Station, whether you're, it's about how you optimize throughput or, um, or otherwise, the, does not need to wait for the Amtrak and New Jersey Transit-oriented vision for expansion of the station. Um, it needs to proceed because we have a station that has, you know, was designed for 200,000 people and now has is, is been forced to accommodate 600,000 people a day, so it needs to be safe, it needs to be high-functioning. There's a lot of debate about through-running versus uh, expansion uh, of the track and platform capacity into adjacent areas. But for, for, for our regional transportation system, we need to fix existing Penn now rather than holding it hostage to uh, a future uh, vision of expansion. You know, we respect New Jersey and Amtrak's desire to expand their service, but for us, it's about making this facility uh, more workable for New Yorkers, who have been pretty, I think, been pretty generous in supporting these Amtrak and New Jersey transit-oriented mega projects. So now it's, it ought to be our turn, and Governor Hochul has made expanding exist or fixing existing pen for New Yorkers her priority, and that's the MTA's priority. And with a, time for a quick last question, if I may, I'll turn to Alaire for the last word. Oh, Larry, you have a, a, a mic right there. $25 billion, excuse me, of the existing capital plan is financed by congestion pricing, mansion tax, and sales tax. These won't be available for the next capital plan. How are you going to fill that gap? Well, if you wanted to know what we're doing in the year, in addition to arguing with Andrew about when we're going to put out cost estimates, we are developing a, a suite of options for how to fill that gap. You're absolutely right, Alert. So we have roughly, if we wanted to do the same capital program we have now, not to mention expanding it, we're about you know, $25 billion short. And then, of course, we may want to expand it. We'll have to come up with options that people like those in this room can get behind or debate or participate in determining. I would just want to thank both of you so much for coming here. Bye.